My name is Gene Colan, and welcome to my studio. Each time I got a story, it was always uppermost in my mind as to how different can I make this one, and this one, and so on. And as they came in, it was, I just threw myself into it, lived another life in a sense. I tried to get into that story myself. I tried to jump into the page and try to imagine what it would be like to see it visually as an outsider. When you have it developed a style, it's as recognizable as your hand, as your handwriting. Same thing. I wanted the, the story to be sort of uh, mystifying and sinister. Hello and welcome to another episode of FW Presents, the anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and this is another installment of my salute to Gene Colan, my favorite comic book artist. Over the last couple of episodes, we have reviewed classic superhero stories about Wonder Woman and Iron Man. This time, we are entering the world of horror and the supernatural, the world that most fans would agree Gene Colan excels at. On deck is the first issue of The Spectre, DC's post-crisis reboot of The Spirit of Vengeance, drawn by Colin and written by Doug Munch. To help me cover this story, I've recruited my former Midnight the Podcasting Hour collaborator, whose coverage of Night Force makes this our 16th time discussing a Gene Colan story. Please welcome one of the hosts of Waiting for Doom, DC OCD, and The Gary Show, Mr. Paul Hicks. What's up, Paul? Hey, the band's back together, man. I missed you so much. Yeah, I know. Are we doing a song for this one? <laughs> you better come up with one. <laughs> you write the lyrics. Hopefully, All right. the Spectre, the Spectre, the Spectre. <laughs> All right, I'll lay down the track. <laughs> Sweet. The creativity is still flowing. Look at that. <laughs> What I mean, uh, we we've talked a lot about Colin before, just in examining uh, his his work on the previous series Night Force that we did. So, spoiler alert for the people following this show: I'm not going to cover any issues of Night Force uh, on future episodes of this one. And I've we've also done them all. We've done them all. <laughs> done them all. I've also talked about other Spectre stories on Midnight the Podcasting Hour with other guests, and hopefully we'll get to some other stories in the future. Um, but we haven't talked about this as far as I know. So what has been your experience with the Spectre previously in comics? Uh, are you a fan of the character? Do you know much about him? I love the Spectre. Yeah, he's great. And um, in fact, this comic that we're looking at right here is a ground zero for my Spectre fandom. So oh, wow. this was the first time I ever read the Spectre was this series. It was probably a bit later in the series, like I probably would have picked up the Invasion crossovers first or the Millennium one. But I mean, I must admit, I was a bit like a panda with a saxophone. I just didn't know what to do with this when I was young. <laughs> um, I just didn't understand it. I, I wasn't equipped to appreciate it. Um, and I think... But around the time my daughter was born, I curated it out of my collection. I probably only read it uh, this run the once, and um, I think it was – I seem to remember diminishing returns on the run. But coming back to this um, and reading it today, it was uh, completely fresh eyes. And you see, so I'm pretty sure I read this version of the Spectre first, and then I went back and read things like Crisis on Infinite Earths and the Swamp Thing run that really sets up the status quo that this story springs off. So I did it all out of order, and I really – you know, I don't remember – 
uh, appreciating this. So looking at it today, it was fresh eyes and it was like, wow, this is amazing and uh, I understand it better and I can see where it's coming from as far as um, what they'd done with the character previously. Yeah, I, I mean, as we'll see once we get into it, this post-crisis take on the character, they really did some intentional changes. I think whether it was the editorial side or this was Doug Mensch's idea when he came on board, he, he really was like, okay, we need to kind of like really re-examine what this character is and how he's going to function in the DC universe. Um, and I appreciate the angle that they were coming from um, because it was one of those things where I I knew of the character, but I didn't have a whole lot of experience. I, I had read the, the Aparo Fleischer series, and I liked those series, but they were kind of just like horror stories, kind of off in their own little corner. I mean, he, he might have been as isolated as the Phantom Stranger when you think of him just as like the vehicle to introduce a morality play of some kind of like like horror story. And then when I did the uh, the Secret Origin story and I was reading more in terms of for researching that podcast episode, I started reading the the later series, the Ostrander and Mandrake one that came after this. Yeah, uh, and, wow. and I loved that everything about it from the art especially and and just like the stories and um and they really brought up a lot of kind of questions about like what is vengeance and what is justice and and like what part of his job is righteous and what part of it is just vindictive and they really kind of brought up some interesting questions that i'd like to revisit for this yeah one, and they didn't have to nerf his power for that series it was more about exploring uh, the morality and uh, the ethical side of it as well and yeah that i mean that's a run that i've read several times i love that run and um i also went back and got the wrath of the specter reprints which are you know the original yep. ones so uh yeah and do we talk about Day of Judgment? No, we probably don't. No. <laughs> uh. <laughs> the closer we get to that era, it's okay. Then the other stuff happened. Um, <laughs> this series was always a little bit fascinating, and I haven't read a whole lot of these issues. I've I've got maybe a dozen issues from this run, but I haven't read them all. And it's just kind of an oddity based on... I, I, well, well, we'll kind of explain more of it once we get into it, but they really, as you said, they kind of nerf him in this story intentionally and really set up this different status quo that I'm like, how much of it are you just completely changing the nature of the character and does this work? But, uh, I don't know. I get, Maybe it's getting a little bit too far into it and we can start talking about that after we've gone through the details. So, for now, folks, uh, we're going to take a short little break, play a promo for one of Paul's shows, if he's lucky, uh, and then after that, we, we will come back to talk the Spectre issue one from 1987. Don't go away. Hello, Paul. Hello. I am Dr. Herfenstaffner. Come in, come in, please. Take a seat. Take a seat. What can I do for you today? Uh, just, I just, I'm, I can't sleep. I, I, I can't focus on anything. The only thing I can think about is like DC events. DC event, as in the comic books, DC events. Yes, yes, the comic book events. Ooh, interesting. Uh, are we we talking things like Crisis on Infinite Earths? Yeah, yeah, totally that one. Yeah. Uh, Infinite Crisis. Yeah, yeah, that one too. Oh, very, very invasion, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the uh, the Genesis. Uh, not so much. No. Oh. Okay, well, I think it's really good if you talk about the things that are troubling you in your life. So maybe you should do a podcast about this obsession. What, what, what do you call this obsession? What do you think it is? 
I think you're a unique case. I've not seen anything like this before in my office. I'm going to suggest that you have what we call DC OCD. What? DC OCD? You are obsessive and compulsive about your DC events. I think you should talk it out, get it out of your system via our podcast. I will help you, my friend. We shall do a podcast together about your DC OCD. Oh, okay. When I won't even start? charge you for it. <laughs> awesome. I don't think I can claim you on benefits. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. <laughs> when shall we start? Um, I'll get back to you on that. I'll check my, I'll check my timetable. <laughs> cool. Spectre 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 Yeah the Spectre The Spectre The Spectre Yeah Yeah Spectre the Spectre Issue 1 has a cover date of April 1987 with a price tag of $1 and cover art by the great Michael Kaluta. The actual on-sale date was January 29th, 1987. The story titled Vessels is written by Doug Munch, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, edited by Robert Greenberger, and of course it was drawn by Gene Colan, this time inked by Steve Mitchell. Kim Lang is a typist at the Gibraltar Insurance Company with a habit for speaking onomatopoetically, as in she sounds out the SFX on the panel. After playful teasing by the company's assistant vice president, Kim abruptly gets up and quits her job. Somewhere in the heavenly cosmos, the specter exists in a state like death. God is hella pissed because the specter had the power to avert the crisis on infinite Earths as well as the war between heaven and hell depicted in the Swamp Thing comics of the same time. And the Spectre failed to stop both of them, and he must be punished for that. Back on Earth, Lou Petrocci, a former partner of Detective Jim Corrigan, refuses to believe that his missing partner is dead. He tells another cop that he plans to find Corrigan. Kim is walking down Christie Street in Greenwich Village, feeling some mysterious pull, like she's going to find a job. A falling pot shatters in front of her. The debris scratches her face and sends her running into the nearest shop for safety. The shop just happens to belong to Madame Xanadu. She's doing a tarot reading and tells Kim to go to Grand Central Station and open Locker 2355. That will determine her future. Kim is curious, but Madame Xanadu says everything will be explained in time. The Voice tells the Spectre that there is still need for an agent of divine vengeance on Earth, so the Spectre will return to the human plane to hunt down evildoers. But there are some new conditions. Kim goes to the station and opens the locker, finding a huge, ornate golden urn. It looks way too heavy to carry by herself. Just that moment, a pair of baggage handlers stop by with a cart to help her move the urn, as if they were under orders to do so. Kim takes a cab back to Madame Xanadu's place, and two random passers-by stop to help her move the urn from the taxi to the shop. 
everyone Kim encounters seems inexplicably willing to help her. Madame Xanadu tells Kim that she was destined to bring the urn here, and then she quite suddenly knocks it over. The urn shatters, and inside is the lifeless body of Jim Corrigan. Madame Xanadu tells Kim not to worry, he won't be dead for long. In heaven and or space, the voice tells the specter that he will no longer have the omnipotent power of God. His powers on earth will be greatly decreased. He will also be bonded to his human form, Jim Corrigan, in a way unlike ever before. Chained to the body, the voice says. Meanwhile, Lou Petrocci breaks into Corrigan's apartment to search for his partner or clues. He finds uneaten food in the kitchen crawling with cockroaches. Disgusted, he picks up a bottle of ketchup, and something sinister inside the ketchup bottle awakens and speaks to Petrocci. In Madame Xanadu's parlor, some poltergeist shit goes on and all of the objects on the shelves start flying around the room. Even Kim starts floating around, banging into the walls. She begs for it to stop, and it finally does, as the specter is confined to the vessel that is Jim Corrigan. Corrigan wakes up, disoriented. At Petrocci's apartment, Lou smashes the ketchup bottle, releasing a tiny creature that looks like a bleeding organ with a demon's face. It commands Lou to put it in the bathtub and then get cardboard. Lou obeys. The spirit of the specter leaves Corrigan's body, causing Jim to double up in pain on the floor, saying it feels like his guts are torn out. Madame Xanadu tells him the pain will come every time the specter leaves Corrigan, but with time he will get used to it and have more control of the change. The specter, meanwhile, inspects Kim Lang. Madame Xanadu tells him that Kim will be Corrigan's assistant, his gal Friday. Kim's reaction is to pass out. The specter goes back into Jim's body. Jim lifts Kim, and he carries her with Madame Xanadu five stories up to the new office of Jim Corrigan, private investigator. Maybe it's the fact that he's alive for the first time in a long time, but Jim's libidinous side comes out commenting on the sexiness of his unconscious assistant and hitting on Madame Xanadu, who makes it clear she is not interested. Elsewhere, some well-dressed Satanist type calls another one to warn him about a significant resurrection on the side of the angels. The well-dressed guy says they must reform the cult of the blood-red moon. Kim wakes up, and Madame Xanadu begins to explain her new situation. The specter feels the stirring of dark forces, as if his first mission is imminent. And in Petrocci's bathroom, Lou is trapped in a sludge of regurgitated cardboard as the demonic voice tells him his corruption is just beginning. Alrighty, so what did you think mm. of this issue? Yeah, I actually really enjoyed it. It was, um, yeah, really good. I've got a much greater appreciation for Gene Collins' art now than I used to have. <laughs> and uh, I think this is really good stuff, and it actually suits his you know style incredibly well. And uh, I think it's probably a lot better than most of his uh, Night Force issues, if I have to be honest. It de- I think it definitely looks more kind of clean and more defined, and I'm, I would assume that probably has to do with the inking. Yeah. I, I don't know if Steve Mitchell has inked a lot of his other stuff, but the edges are a lot like more cleanly defined. The coloring, I think, is a little bit stronger. Um, although I think Adrian Roy colored both, didn't she? Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. That doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, uh, this was kind of what we were talking about in terms of just the overall plot and the state of the Spectre at the beginning of the story, like where he is. Uh, I, I think Munch, and whether it was his idea when he came aboard, if this was his pitch or if this was just something that DC decided that they needed to do with the character, they were like, he was too overpowered, and that created a problem when he couldn't just snap his fingers and save the day when they needed, for plot reasons, basically. Uh, everything else to go down with the other stories, like in Crisis. So how do you have a character who is essentially the agent of God and can do those omnipotent, omniscient things, how do you have him in the world and still have any kind of stakes or any kind of threat? Or Why do you even need characters like Superman and the Justice League if the Spectre is there? Um, mm. And it's it's a, I think it's a good question to ask. I mean, like, I, I've certainly brought it up and I do think he is a, a difficult character to to maintain in the larger DC universe. And in this case, they basically just said, all right, we're going to really hinder him. He's not going to be that powerful. I think they actually said he is as powerful as the most powerful, like, sorcerer or, like, like uh, spirit uh, in the DC universe. He's the top ghost on Earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, top ghost on Earth, yeah. Um, but they also really create this like this new kind of duality. It's almost a Banner Hulk type of situation where they're not happy that they're bonded together. Really, they both feel like the other one is really kind of harsh in their time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, particularly because the last time we saw him in the DC universe in um, Swamp Thing and in Crisis on Infinite Earth, he was sort of um, galactic sized, mm-hmm. um, you know, and doing all this, you know, standing in front of you know, swirling galaxies and grappling with um, shadow demons of massive scale, etc. I mean, particularly in the um, the Swamp Thing one, he gets his um, butt kicked by, um, you know, this great big uh, dark entity that he's struggling with, and then he realizes he's fighting the fingernail of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's still on a massive scale. So, I mean, and literally the cover of this book by um, Kaluta has, um, you know, a galactic-sized... Uh, Spectre doing traffic control in the universe of all these <laughs> souls or something. Can we talk about that image for a moment? I know it's not uh, Colin, but yeah, it's yeah. a great image. But it's just begging for watercolours, don't you reckon? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just got standard colouring and it. it just, um, I think it loses a lot of its power because of that. Yeah, if you did like a real sort of painterly job on that one, that would be, that could be really something else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for, and I will post a picture of this, obviously, but yeah, the Spectre is. He, he dwarfs the earth. Basically, the earth is the size of a basketball in his in one of his hands, and the other hand is, like, holding up. But, yeah, all around him, kind of floating around in these sort of traffic patterns as if they're, like, blown by these swirling winds, um, like the uh, first or second realm, uh, circle of hell. Uh, all of these, like, spirits and, like, souls, just, like, without clothes, just, like, bodies, as just, like, these almost snake-like tendrils just kind of floating around in these patterns. And, and yeah, if they could really do a more... Uh, I, I think you're right, like a watercolor kind of like effect on something like that. Like this would be, I mean, blow this up as a poster, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Getting back to before diving really into the art, um, but like just kind of going back through like beats of the story. Um, what do you think about like turning Jim into kind of an occult private investigator for this one? I think it's good. I mean, it gives you sort of a, a status quo that you could use if, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like a TV setup, whereas, you know, uh, the Spectre of the series, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. in the apartment, you know, the office above Madame Xanadu. And, you know, that's a good uh, combination to, to have Madame Xanadu involved as well, because um, she she can be an explainer of the cosmic mm-hmm. um, in a way that, uh, you know, Jim is a doer. 
<laughs> and she can be the, this is what's happening. And then you've got um, Kim as the brand new character who can ask the questions. So, you know, it's quite a tight cast for a TV show. And um, I think if this came out, you know, these days, that would be how they would look at it. You know, yeah. you don't need that many effects for this to become a TV show. Yeah, I mean, it, it's because this feels so different. I, I like part of me almost instinctually rejects it that this isn't the this isn't what the Spectre is supposed to be. But I can't deny that this works. This is as, as a first issue, it bounces a little bit all over the place. I kind of felt like it was a little bit zigzagging between Kim's story and the Spectre story a little bit too much in the beginning. But once you kind of found the rhythm of it, and as I was synopsizing it, I really think just like as a as an intro and the way they set up the status quo, you're right. Like this would be like the perfect setup. You've got this private eye, his you know his assistant slash you know legs gal Friday potential uh, romantic interest in the future with Zad, um, Madame Xanadu as like the neighbor who can also be a, a source of exposition or who can introduce the problems for him. This is all really good, just like. F- fundamental like building the firmament of what this world is right off the bat plus the complicated nature of Corgan and the Spectre they can coexist in the same realm although there are difficulties with that it kind of gives Jim Corrigan a character for the first time in a long time because in the Golden Age stories at least the ones that I've read and even in the Michael Fleischer stories I mean he was pretty much just uh, hard-ass detective guy who's just basically a stand-in who's a- as severe as the Spectre without the powers and and kind mm. of like flat and emotionless because he was a corpse, basically. So this is kind of like the first time they're letting him be somebody different. So it is kind of interesting to see what they would do with this. Yeah, and particularly, I mean, you do have the Spectre going from cosmic to sort of mundane throughout this story, and that is sort of paralleled by Kim getting the call as well. So, you know, the Spectre's being told by, well, presumably God that, you know, you failed, you're a screw-up, but, um, you know, I I understand that you have screwed up because your task is impossible, but I'm going to punish you, but also... And they move you on by, you know, giving you a new mission. And at the same time, Kim is obviously hearing some, you know, unspoken call that she should leave her job and wander down the street. And, you know, then she, the pot smashing drives her into Madame Xanadu's office and uh, bringing them together with the same call, but on these completely different scales. is It's quite cool. Yeah. Uh, the title Vessels is appropriate in that uh, Corrigan is sort of a vessel for the Spectre now, the way that he's kind of like the host. We see Corrigan in in this giant urn, this vessel. Um, there are tons of like pots and things, like the the one that nearly hits Lang and, and sends her into Madame Xanadu's parlor. Um, the ketchup bottle that has like this weird demon thing that takes over Petrochi. All of these little like vessels and pots and containers that really kind of becomes a theme for this issue. Yeah, yeah. But these ketchup bottles were they ever glass in America? Yes, actually. The for and actually in like in older school diners, you can still actually find uh, like glass ketchup bottles was kind of a thing. Wow. Yeah, yeah we only have tomato sauce in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the cult of the blood red moon. I don't know, because I haven't read the next issue in the series, I don't know exactly what their deal is in this story, but that name goes back to the I Vampire series from the House of Mystery pre-Crisis. 
Um, the cult of the Blood Red Moon was a cult of vampires in that story. So I don't know if that's the same thing in this one. I, I kind of get the sense that it's not. But well, the, the first few albums were really good. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> like the body horror on the last panel, or on the last story, of just like whatever this thing is taking Petrochi, so... Yeah, well, I mean, well, particularly around the farm, we've got sheds, and every now and again you'll, you know, pull out a plastic crate, and it's got this sort of, um, you know, muddy cocoon stuff on it that the the wasps build, and that's what exactly what that is. So, you know, you've got ketchup demon, but he likes to chew up cardboard and spit it out and make uh, cocoons, and yeah. yeah. So, and Lou is completely um, bewitched, isn't he? Or yeah, just going straight along with it. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of a lot of characters in the story sort of acting without their own agency. They're just kind of like possessed, yeah. or, or just like bewitched into acting somewhere, doing something. So, mm. uh, all right, getting into the art, um, I think okay. Kim looks really good from the right from the beginning. I think she, uh, as Jim says, she's kind of like cute and sexy. Although I wish that wasn't the first thought he had when he wakes up from being dead. It's kind of really. Well, the second second thought was threesome. <laughs> So. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, I mean, like, what did you think of like just like the art on like the big cosmic pages, like when it's just the specter floating in space and everything like that, and and I, I think the edges are a little bit more colonesque. Yeah, well, you've got all the swirling souls and the skulls and the you know mm-hmm. spirits, and it's 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 just very very colon and very perfect, and uh, you know, yeah, I really like those pages, and yeah, um, yeah and then you've got. You know the colon art of, of the brownstones. You've got this great juxtaposition, and you know cars and VWs and things like that. Oh, that's really good. I especially love the layout of page fifteen for being like not a, a page with a specter or anything. It's like as like the poltergeist activity is going around, and it's basically six panels. Four of them are just showing like stuff like moving like pots and like uh, like tea kettle jars and everything like just like shaking on on the shelves of Madame Xanadu's place, and the other two uh, panels are just like Kim reacting and freaking out. But none of the panels are symmetrical. None of them are like lined up according to any kind of grid. They're all kind of jumbled and shaken around and a little bit off kilter. And you really get the sense of like the movement and what's going on and that everything is vibrating and shaking erratically. And I, I really really like that. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, all the stuff in the apartment's going a bit be our guest at this point. Ah, <laughs> oh, that should be, that should be the song. <laughs> be possessed, be possessed. <laughs> Put your patience to the test. Yeah. The demonic guy. As soon as I saw him, I thought, "Oh, Baron Winters is in." This. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then he was like, "Oh no, it's Baron Winters with flies on his face." <laughs> Where's that? Where's that jaguar? That leopard? Whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, on Shag's behalf, um, Madame Xanadu, page twenty-one, hot. <laughs> of course, of course. I I like the way he draws Madame Xanadu. Um, in part because I think he gives her a kind of beauty, but a, a slightly ill-defined exotic beauty. Um, you don't quite yep. know where she's from or how old she is, and I think that is kind of essential to the character. And she he gives her slight hair horns. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> like slightly demonic. But, uh, I mean, I do love his depiction of um, Jim Corrigan, uh, you know, literally, you know, sunken eyes. He looks so haunted. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is very appropriate. I mean, yeah, I'm so used to him being a, a tough guy, not showing emotion, and here he looks, you know, very vulnerable and um, humbled. I think, you yeah. know, ready for a new a new role in life mm-hmm. or death or whatever. <laughs> Although still able to carry a full grown woman up five flights of stairs, that's that's impressive for yeah. being dead just like five minutes earlier. Yeah, that would be a pain. I'd want to lift if I was in that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but still free rent. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a solid start. Like I, I haven't read issues two or three, but I definitely want to want to pick them up sometime because I I like this story and I'm I'm more curious now about this this era of of Spectre and just kind of like most of the issues of the series that I've read come later in in the series and I wasn't that much of a fan of them, which is why I kind of never really felt the desire to go back and collect this whole run. But definitely these early issues. I mean, Colin worked on the first six, I think. And I think like the last couple of issues actually involve a mystery about Corgan's death, basically how he ended up in that urn, um, mm. and, and sort of kind of reveal like what happened to him just before this series takes place. So yeah, well, I've read the whole run, but I don't remember it very well at all. I do remember there was a um, a ghost in the machine story where he was fighting a guy who had possessed computers, and mm-hmm. you know, and that was um, not not well done. Let's just say that. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I'm curious, because seeing uh, Tom Mandrake on uh, the Spectre series that followed this makes a lot more sense after seeing, you know, revisiting Gene Colan on the beginning of this one. So I'm curious, how how long was Colan on this run? Do you you remember? I think it's just the first five or six issues. Right. Um, And I don't remember who picked up after him. Yeah, I don't remember the art being spectacular towards the end. But um, it's... Weird that this has never been collected. Well, it's not that weird, I guess. But it's not on Comixology. When you, you know, called me up and said, "Hey, let's do this," I was like, "Oh, you know, I'll just wander over and get it." And I was like, "Oh, it's not there." So that was a surprise and a pity. Yeah, sort of forgotten about for now. We'll have to wait yeah. until you know. Maybe if they ever do make a uh, Justice League Dark movie or something like that, like they could. Uh They'll do more with these characters if he was involved. This is the type of Spectre character who could actually function with that type of group dynamic. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting to see. In this day and age, it seems that if Jeff Johns does something, it's picked up for TV. But, you know, the DC is, is, is full of little, you know, gems like this, which could be uh, jumping off points for different media and stuff. All right, then, uh, yeah, just before we go, then, the last thing. If you could have one piece of original art, one page of original art from this book, what page would you want? Ooh, ooh, that's hard. Um, I, well, I think I would go with a dynamic page with lots of uh, movement and action, and I reckon I'd go with page 19. I particularly love, you know, it's got uh, Jim sort of breaking out of the the urn and coming to life and pulling off the cobwebs mm-hmm. and um, the second last panel on that page is the spectre coming out of Jim and it's fabulous it's yeah. great it's so it's so ghosty and ethereal and oh I love it and Kim freaking out and screaming it's just a really good page that is good I like that one a lot too um, <laughs> what about you Ah, there's so many like I page ten uh, where you just have kind of like the specter floating around, but just like the faces of the spirits and the dead kind of like all around him. Uh, that's pretty cool. I like page seven 
um, which is Kim kind of like huddling after she was almost hit by the fallen pot when you see like the blood trickling by her eye, and then she enters Madame Xanadu's parlor, uh, and Xanadu's holding up the tarot cards just for like the the atmosphere and like kind of like the spookiness. I think seeing that in like the original black and white pencils would be really cool. Um, and can I talk about that page for a minute? Because yeah. I, you know, when you see mediums on TV, I'm a skeptic. I, I always think mediums are full of crap. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you see mediums on TV, they're always like, oh, I'm sensing something with a J. Was there someone <laughs> in your life? Who's, you know, and I'm sensing, you know, you were happy when you were with them, you know, and it's yeah. like, yeah, okay, you've had your private investigators look into this people or you know something or, you know, it's, right. anyway, but I love that Madame Xanadu, she reads the cards and she's, her um, reading is, go to Central Station uh, <laughs> where storage locker 2355 will open to you. I wish all the mediums on TV had that specificity. <laughs> right. So you got that from a tarot card, really? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, it, mediums should be going, you know, Uncle Dave is still pissed at you over last Christmas. <laughs> you, know, you really, it was your fault about the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the sort of thing they should be saying, not this this vague, you know, I've given you some breadcrumbs now. Pick up the breadcrumbs and give me something to work with. Yeah, so I, I love that. <laughs> so this is Paul's pitch for a new Doorway to Nightmare Madam Xanadu series. <laughs> <laughs> Specific, exact... <laughs> tarot card readings. <laughs> so yeah, she's just like, yes, your boyfriend was cheating on you. <laughs> and you, all the evidence was right there. You should have known it. It's like, I don't even need to call on the saints, on the spirits to, to know that. <laughs> You're going to die on next Tuesday. <laughs> yep, yep. And there's nothing you can do to stop. Oh, <laughs> so. uh, well, thank you for helping me cover this issue. Um, it's always great to talk to you about uh, whether it's Gene Colon comic or something else. Uh, I mean, this is certainly the trend. No, no, it's a pleasure to be back here. And, and you know, and I'm a big fan of all your shows like The Cheers Hour and um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, Give me those the, fish power, of, the power of Joy. <laughs> <laughs> it's been too long, Ryan. It has, it has. I'm so glad that you and your whole, you know, whole life didn't burn down in those fires. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Just need a bit more rain so we can keep drinking water at the property. Um, but otherwise, we're, we're, we're doing well. Good, good. Where else can people hear from you if they want to hear more of your podcasts or your just kind of angry rambling about things? <laughs> well, um, I'm doing, well, three podcasts at the moment. So we're still doing Waiting for Doom, which is the Doom Patrol podcast that's been going for uh, over five years now and going very well. Um, Doom Patrol on a TV show, of course. We made that happen. Um, <laughs> and we do the DC OCD, which is the DC events. And recently we've added a new show, just uh, Mike and I, just because our schedule has uh, been a bit... Um, ill-disciplined let's call it uh so we've come up with the gary show where we just talk to each other about whatever we want to talk about and uh it's born out of slackness in other areas and not needing to prep too much for that one i i i love the gary show i could listen to that all the time just like the conversations and and like with like the fan submitted questions and everything some of the stories that you went into last time just like getting like being like the only person in australia to mail flag points in for gi joes and getting <laughs> some, getting some some guy working at an office being like i'm gonna present this to the first little boy in australia who actually ordered this thing with the flag points and shows up at your door to find out that you are 19 years old i was like oh man 
American these days that could get that guy arrested if he went somewhere expecting to find a little kid and found out a grown man. He'd be like, oh, God, I'm on TV. (laughs) Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah, and I'm on Twitter at reading underscore Hicks, and, um, yeah, I'm occasionally appearing on your shows. Occasionally. (laughs) When the the stars align, yeah. Uh, well, you know, as always, thank you for helping me talk about another one of these stories with another one of my favorite characters by my favorite artist. Um, listeners, as always, thank you so much for tuning in as well. If you like this discussion, please support us on social media by liking or favoriting the posts on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave a comment on the episode post at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can always go to iTunes and leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any other show on the Fire and Water Network. For more information on how you can support this network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening.